welcome, Brad. Thanks for joining Lakeview to talk about the politics of Jesus. We're really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so we've been in this series for a couple of weeks. And the first week, we kind of set some foundations for how we were going to have this conversation. And I used the passage from 2 Corinthians 5. Um, and we came up with three foundations that we were going to let the love of Christ compel and constrain us, uh, that we were going to have the same opinion of one another as God has of us, and that our goal would not be to change people's mind or convert them, but instead to engage in reconciliation. So we spent some time exploring about how Christ's love constrains us. Like, you know, we do things in a certain way and we don't do them in other ways because Christ's love constrains us. But I've been thinking a little bit about how Christ's love also compels us. It urges us to act in certain ways. And those ways aren't always just in our private spheres. They also are in social spheres, which leads us to the idea of politics what is politics? What does it look like to be a Christian and be compelled by uh, the love of Christ in the sphere of politics? Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a that's an incredibly loaded and complex sorry. question, isn't it? <laughs> Don't be sorry. I mean, that's the nature of it, isn't it? Um, but I do need to sort of distill it a little bit. Mm -hmm. So when we use the word politics, that, that is actually an old Greek word for, to do with the polis, the city. How a, city, how a city functions, which is what their politics was. And so then um, if we begin to talk about, about the politics of Jesus, we have to ask, did he have an opinion about that? Mm -hmm. And that's um, also bound to his culture. So for example, when we think about the politics of, of Jesus, um, we, we do recognize he resisted being made king, for example. Hmm. Um, so he was, and he could have done that quite easily, especially after the resurrection. He could have led a political gathering of a million people to overtake Rome through force. Well, that was not his politics. Um, but also remember that he he grew up in in occupied territories under Roman domination, where certain things we take for granted in politics aren't possible. You know, he didn't, he didn't have a, a thoughts uh, to share about political policies as Rome should, you know, <laughs> uh, or who to vote for all of those things um, were would have would have been irrelevant to him. But what was relevant is how do you live in the context of an empire or in the shadow of an empire where you see oppression and you see segregation and you see domination and where where the powers that be have their their boot on the throat of the disinherited and the disenfranchised and the poor and that he was one of them you know hmm. and so here is jesus growing up in nazareth just a few kilometers from the city of sepphoris where as a child he would have seen a revolt happen there that was crushed by the romans where uh, I, I believe they crucified thousands of people simultaneously. And little boy Jesus would have been a witness to this. How does this inform his approach to faith? 
And so um, just then to shift then, I think if we're going to find uh, the mandate of Jesus for his kingdom, aha, we're back to politics and he does have a kingdom after all, but it's a very subversive kind of kingdom, isn't it? It's a kingdom he says is within us. It's a kingdom that he says is nonviolent. It is a kingdom um, that engages the enemy other in ways that his zealot friends um, and disciples would have would have thought were too mild, but also it's it's far more engaging and prophetic than those who would want to privatize their faith. And now this comes back to us um, when we talk when we talk about uh, Christian faith. I do see two ditches. One is one is a politicized ditch where we conflate our idea of politics with, let's say, party politics and partisan policies, we begin to conflate that with our Christianity and we start preaching that from the pulpit and telling people who to vote for or sending out like uh, urgent intercession requests to make sure we vote and vote our guy in so that our Christian policies can be enforced through political power. And that, to me, that that is a... That is not what the Sermon on the Mount is prescribing. The other ditch, though, is when we, when we decide we're going to make our faith uh, purely private, you know. And this is a very, this, the, the first ditch we might see is a very American problem. Um, the Canadian problem is keep your faith in your bedroom, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> keep it, or, or in the privacy of your closet. And um and yet, uh, this kind of split between public public faith and private faith would also have made no sense to Jesus Christ. So when he talks about, um, blessed are you who are hungry and thirsty after righteousness, the word he's using there is identical for, uh, to the word we use for justice. Mm-hmm. So justice, public justice, and personal righteousness were, were not separate in in jewish language in greek language i've checked around the world by the way yeah it's the same word in china it's the same word in the czech republic it's the same word in just about every language but english english is very interesting how we've separated righteousness as this personal piety and justice as this secondary thing you you know that you do in public and what does christianity really have to do with that well, Jesus seems to think that uh, that living as those who love God and neighbor and stranger and enemy have a public faith, public but not politicized, um, but political in the sense that it engages and addresses the powers where we see injustice, because Jesus wasn't just about making good Christians. He wants to actually restore humanity and redeem society. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, just how Jesus invites us to engage in the social sphere, but it isn't like this left-right dichotomy or, you know, that's a loaded question too, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. And, but it's so important, right? Because we, we can end up just being, uh, becoming servants of a political party Mm-hmm. where they give us our script and where um, when you depart from that script, then you're seen to, you know, 
in some kind of act of betrayal or something like that. Uh, rather, I think the idea is to consistently ask, what is the gospel calling us to do? What is Jesus calling us to do? What is love compelling us to do? And that is hazardous because sometimes what love is calling us to do is the opposite of what the state is promoting. And sometimes it coincides with what the state is promoting. But we have to remember it's a coincidence <laughs> so that we don't buy into the ideology that drives them just because the outworking of it in this moment happens to coincide. So, for example, um, let's take uh, an immigration policy. Well, I take my immigration policy from Jesus' uh, call to welcome the stranger. Stranger in Hebrew or Greek, you know, is, is with the, the Jewish backstory, was about refugees, immigrants, internally displaced people, people not like us. And so the kingdom call, regardless of what a particular political party has to say about the kingdom call is for radical hospitality. Um, so then, so then I might, I might want uh, our politicians to know that their policies are just or unjust in, in, in how they're engaging with, with um, like with immigration issues. That said, uh, when we talk about what we should do, it's very important to remember who we are. Mm -hmm. In other words, what is the public, what is the public faith for our church look like when it comes to immigration? Well, that's not quite the same as, as saying what should what should the prime minister be signing off on and signing, you know, and so then, so, so, and this is, this is why Jesus wasn't constantly sending mandates to the Roman governor, you know, <laughs> he's establishing a mandate for his gathering, his ecclesia. And so as it relates to Lakeview Church, then it's like, well, what is your position on immigration? I don't want to hear a partisan public document. I want to hear how you are going to engage strangers in your community, mm. you know, and that is public faith. In a sense, it's political, but not politicized. Mm -hmm. And I would think this works on, you know, you could just start working this around, um, you know, almost any issue where, sure, there's a left-right political opinion on it, but okay, in this moment, what's the gospel opinion for our community look like? And are we meant to speak beyond our community into the nation? Uh, and uh, this is tricky because being prophetic can sound like your lobby group, yeah. and maybe you will be. <laughs> maybe you're meant to phone people on but also to, to not get caught into what you and we, you and I would share this, uh, this perspective, I think, that, that uh, the left-right political spectrum is the world system, hmm. and that's not who's leading us. Hmm. Um, and Christians far too easily uh, start identifying as left or right, both politically 
and ideologically mm-hmm. and theologically. It's like, I'm on the left on this. I'm on the right on that. What does that even mean? What if that whole left-right spectrum, including the center, is the world system that hates the gospel because it always assumes that there is an enemy other? And so let's say I'm exactly right and, and on, on some issue. I'll pick one on the right now. Okay. See, I'm, I'm going to use that language on the right. Yeah. You know, so um, I, I'm personally, so this personally, I, I have had so many dear friends in the disability community who, who are really um, precious, almost angelic folks uh, with Down syndrome. So I'm, I'm personally opposed to um, uh, to eradicating that whole people group in the womb. Like there, there is, it's not just about the abortion issue. It's there is intense pressure by the people in the medical community for the eradication of all Down syndrome people before they're born. I'm opposed to that because so I sound right there. I sound mm-hmm. like I'm on the right. Um, well, so what does right there mean? Well, right becomes this political statement. It, it, it's certain parties gravitate towards it. They make it part of their document or the ideologues grab hold of that. And um, the moment then I say, well, no, it's, it's, the love of, it's the love of Christ in me for these brothers and sisters of mine who made it through, the, through childbirth. And now um, they are crying out. The voice of people with disabilities crying out um, for for the advocates who will defend them. Well, okay, the love of Christ compels me to do that. I don't really care what the political parties are. In fact, none of them care. So <laughs> then, why is that right? Well, it's it's, it's I don't know. <laughs> but what happens is then, if I if I identify as right, now I alienate myself from those who are defending life on the left. Because they, they're thinking left and right. I'm just thinking life. I'm thinking love. I'm thinking what does light look like that pushes a back of darkness um, uh, of injustice or oppression or domination or, or death dealing. And so um, when, when I want to, when, when I am all over the map, so people think I'm all over the map if they think the map is left, right, and center. Mm-hmm. I'm not all over the map. I'm just, I'm trying to follow Jesus one issue at a time and asking, what would that look like for me? When do I, when do I address this? How do I address this? With whom do I address this? And my experience is that if, if those on the, on the, in the matrix of the spectrum um, think you're on their side, then they think you need to hate the other. And when you don't, watch your back Hmm. because betrayers are attacked. And so the most vicious, (laughs) the most vicious experiences of from haters that I've had are those who assume that I was on their side and then and then realized I don't believe in sides. And nor did Jesus. Often then as Christians or 
in myself and my, my group of, you know, my community, it's like, well, let's just retreat to the center. Let's not take a stand on anything. And we're, you know, we're, we're peacemakers. If we just, we don't, you know, sort of shimmy to the left or to the right, but just talk to us about how the center is not, is not the place that we're trying to get to. Right. Yeah. I just think that's exactly right. That, um, so one way that I think the center has been exposed as part of the matrix, and sometimes maybe we're meant to be closer to the center, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that means, mm-hmm. but um, we're seeing this in the extreme now where one, one way of seeing the matrix is left, right, that makes the center look sort of uh, more benign. But another way of seeing the same matrix is is establishment versus mm. um, uh, radicals. Mm. And, and again, right? So establishment can be a center of power that dominates and excludes and, and um, keeps a status quo that keeps, thing, keeps things from being equitable. Well, that's just evil then. Mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. So for somebody like, on the far right or the far left, the center is hardly benign. It is the beast, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, for those though who gravitate to the center, they look and even I wouldn't use it. So there, I've used words like far left, far right. What am I saying? Well, that the centrist sees every sees radicalization, um, even where they come together. So it's like you end up. On both ends, the radicals just mirror each other. Yeah, yeah it comes around Meet in the middle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm saying, wow, what a trap that is and how it takes a lot of focus and discipline to continually say, I'm, I am not of that world. And the reason I'm not of that world is the othering. It is this sense of us and them that requires an enemy is energized by conflict with that enemy and and is is always about win lose rather than win win and and with with when we start labeling something far far left or far right then we we also think look and we need to silence that enemy as well we need to beat them and we need to silence them and so on so then I'm like okay so i don't believe in that i believe um, that Jesus called us off the spectrum, but not out of engagement. And so he gives us some pattern of engagement and called love. And of course, people have co-opted that term to, uh, to retreat. And, and, uh, and yet you've talked about how love compels us. Well, compels us to do what? What are the strategies of the Sermon on the Mount? Um, and so I just, I, you know, right now, I, after, uh, one of my, the most important books in my life at this moment is, is uh, by Howard Thurman, Jesus and the Disinherited. His grandmother was a slave. He became an activist, a scholar, a preacher, a reverend, and a spiritual mentor to Martin Luther King Jr. in the civil rights movement. And his, what he, he, and he was also like a contemporary and acquaintance of Gandhi. 
and they really worked together to talk about what is the religion of Jesus. They weren't afraid of the word religion. It's like the religion of Jesus that engages the powers without getting sucked in. And so Thurman comes along and he's just one of the, he, he explains how, um, how the genius of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and things like love in, in order to eradicate what he called the three hounds of hell, which were uh, fear and deception and hatred. And he said, you're never going to overcome injustice. You're never going to set society right as long as those three hellhounds are allowed to continue dogging and dominating the disenfranchised and disinherited. So he's, and, and so his concern was, was not even at this point initially, how do we, you know, how do we overcome racism, but it's how do we overcome these demons um, that, that take racism and injustice and domination inside of us? Yeah. How can we be free even in the midst of, of, <laughs> the Roman occupation of Galilee, where you can see crosses on the road. And so the Sermon on the Mount then becomes for Thurman, who I think is just his, one of the most marvelous um, commentators on it, how, how then this love compels us to drive out fear, um, to drive out deception, to drive out hatred in us, and, and in very practical ways. So for uh, let me give you a quick example. So, so in, in terms of fear, this idea that, that being under constant threat yeah. um, begins to erode or corrode my sense of who I am. Mm -hmm. And I go, I just, and, and um, so he, and he's saying this to his fellow black folks in his community who were going through the Jim Crow days and lynchings. And he's saying, we, we've got to expunge that fear from our hearts. And here's how you do it. You remember who you are. And here's who you are. You are children of your father in heaven. You are a child of God. And suddenly, no matter what the external pressures were, this, this began to their sense of who I am. I'm a beloved child of my father in heaven who can trust him to take care of me no matter what. And it begins driving the fear out of them. And, and, and that's powerful because now if I'm fearless, I relate to the white supremacist differently than if I'm afraid of them. I mean, and that love, the, the, the sense of, of identity of being children of God actually then begins to have a direct impact on the political structures that are handcuffing us Yeah, with, with deception. He says, He's not as concerned to, to, for himself to deal with how, how um, society has, de has deceived itself and deceived them into making them keep their place. You know, you, you stay in your place and you're, you know, get, creating these kind of degrading statuses for people, right? He says, well, no, um, actually, the first thing we need to look at is how we begin to engage deception ourselves to try to skirt that and to cope with it and 
to to um, bypass their deception with our deception. Now it's a game of deception. He said, no, 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 um, that's still a hound of hell. And we begin to become the lie. We begin to become deception and the moral corrosion on our, on a soul on it's not worth the cost. So he goes back to Jesus. What does Jesus say? Let your yes be yes. And your no be no. In other words, be utterly unabashedly sincere, even if it's dangerous, because even if it's dangerous to do so, this is how movements start. And also it begins to undermine the deception in the oppressor. And Again, now you're doing the work of justice, but, and then the five, of course, hatred, he, he comes at that and just says, it's very addictive because we've used it to survive. <laughs> and in fact, we thought our energy, our, our hatred was energizing us. <laughs> and he's like, in the long run, and it doesn't, it, it kills your creativity. It kills your, it makes you feel self-righteous even. And it's, and it's a huge deception. So Jesus comes along and says, how are we going to do this love thing? And he talks about entering fellowship and forgiveness with the other in, and so something as simple as invitation to a banquet where your indiscriminate hospitality, where you're putting together people side by side, to have a shared meal who aren't the same. And something about that begins to undermine the sense of us, them, but also us over them. So now it's a work of justice just to put a tax collector and a zealot side by side. Right. Or to, to have a white child and a, and a black child yeah. in the same household is it, 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 it's doing something very political at that mm -hmm. point. But maybe that's the wrong word, right? It's mm -hmm. you, you're you're going into the roots mm -hmm. of what creates injustice, and so now suddenly Thurman and Jesus don't sound so naive when they say yeah. "love love your enemies." You're like, this is a genius it kind is. of uh, social restructuring from the meal table outwards. What does it look like to be church or to define church in a way that doesn't? just play by the rules of, of the spectrum, like whether that's right and left or, you know, socioeconomic status, cultural status. Um, can you give us a little bit of a vision of the church? Like that banquet table was beautiful, but yeah, take us deeper. Yeah. That was a real model for us and coming out of Jesus parables, you know, he he's at banquets more than he's in the synagogue in the text. Um, he's, his favorite parables seem to be, or most repetitious anyway, uh, banqueting kind of scenarios. So this is coming out of the Old Testament prophets and their call to justice. Um, uh, Isaiah and Micah and these folks where they're like, look, at the, the kingdom of God is to be a banqueting table for all peoples. And then they describe those who are coming to it as across the board. Well, I, I, I had been a pastor for 20 years, um, and uh, midway through that, we, we shifted into church planting. And I went to church planters school, and I learned that one of the best ways to plant a church is to develop a homogeneous unit. I can't think of a more demonic <laughs> idea. Uh, in other words, find people who are like you, and that's an easy way to start a church. And so we threw out all the rules on that on purpose. Mm -hmm. um, and 
and we just began to notice how eclectic Jesus' circle of disciples was, from tax collector to zealot, of course, mm-hmm. um, and also how eclectic the, the church in Acts was. Um, even like the last chapter of Romans in the closing greetings, Paul is saying, giving his greetings to people who, who are in, in the emperor's household and to Tertius and Cordus. Well, those are numbers, three and four, the slave, slave numbers. And he's treating them all as brothers and sisters and reminding them, let's say in Philemon, that, you know, the great, um, Oh, holy knights as a slave comes our brother oppression ceases. So, so, um, my, my thought is that if the Holy spirit is involved in what we're doing and we are willing to take note, um, Christ will begin bringing friends together who are very different. And so, so, uh, at a church, it was a 20 year project we were involved for, I was involved for half of it. And we, we saw God, God brought, um, one care home of people with disabilities to our church. We didn't invite them, but a friend of mine brought, brought them who was working in the home and another friend working in a different company in another care home thought I could do that too. Now, suddenly we had two care homes. So we had eight people with disabilities and full-time care attending the church and they got really loud because some of them, some of them shriek, some of them have grand mal seizures, some of them just want, want to be exuberant, whatever. And the moment that felt disruptive, we said, wait a minute, what if that's the kingdom of God? And the disruption is on our stage right now. So let's say I'm preaching and someone has a seizure, where's the kingdom of God? It's going to be in the group of people that gather around that person to hold them and care for them and pray for them. Um, and I dare not interrupt that. <laughs> and so um, people saw that that was our reaction. And so other care homes started to come. Eventually a third of our church consisted of people with disabilities and full-time care. Only we didn't even do anything except not kick them out. Mm-hmm. We just tried to love them and treat them, um, first of all, as brothers and sisters, not as our target group. They were never our target group, ever. But they become our mentors in the kingdom. Well, what happened was we had um, we had people in our in our church who also were working in a in a facility or like a, a recovery house for people with addictions. So they thought, you know, this is messy enough place that our folks will probably be able to engage here without feeling lower than or less than or out, outsiders. And they came in and sure enough, they said like, wow, the moment I came in the room, I knew I would not be judged <laughs> and I'm home. Right. And so now suddenly a lot of addicts started showing up mm-hmm. who are very different than the people with disabilities. So now we're not homogeneous. And then from there, the poor began showing up. Poor could be working poor but it could also be the homeless showing up. And, and then, and then we began to have families showing up who um, uh, with children who were too disruptive to be in a regular 
church or Sunday school, and they, they didn't want to be separated from their children so they could sit in the service. And, and it, we just, it became such a beautiful expression and it felt like a banquet. Hmm. Um, and then I'll just say one other thing about that is it's like, so without orchestrating it, I think if, if you're not resistant, the spirit will draw people if hmm. you're willing to make it a healthy place for them to, to feel belonging and that they get to contribute. So, um, and to be part, you know, not just spectators. Eventually we said, you know, we should have an actual, actual uh, potluck lunches together and make it the banquet, like mm-hmm. express it that way. And we, we found out if we did it after church, no one stayed. <laughs> so we said, okay, once a month, that will be church. Bring your, bring your crock pot and we'll, and um it took a whole year for people to even learn how to eat together around a table. Some had never participated in a family meal in their life. Hmm. They didn't know what to do. About a year in, we it, it clicked and we kind of learned how to eat together. And, and then word got out and people just wanted to come to the banquet. In our world right now, like, so Lakeview itself is, we're pretty homogenous. Um, but immunizations, vaccination status have brought tension. It's brought difference into our community. How does, you've talked a little bit about how difference you've experienced in your church plant brought like just life, but how do we like engage this without being afraid of it or without like being okay with the fact that there's tension and that this is actually what the church is supposed to be? I have some personal practices Mm -hmm. around that. So one of my personal practices is that, um, is that I don't want to live in a, in an echo chamber of people who agree with me. Mm -hmm. So let's say on uh, one example of that would be, um, uh, I am, I am very, I, I believe that Christ's sermon on the Mount is very clearly, uh, a, condemnation of militarism as a solution to anything you don't cast out satan using satan (laughs) that said then wherever i get a strong conviction and again i'm not hardly looking for this i get a strong conviction about that and what does the lord do he brings me a lieutenant colonel of the u.s special forces and now i can either turn from him or engage him and we became very good friends. We're in contact probably three times a week. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I could not make his leaving the military a condition of that. But what it did, and, and he knew exactly where I stand. And he made the same choice. And so, so one was to enter relationships with, with those who differ with you strongly about something. Um, with an understanding that maturity is being able to hold difference with respect. Maturity is holding difference with respect. So then we, in our classrooms at St. Stephen's University, um, you know, I had a conservative Republican student from California, who's a pastor sitting in my class next to um, a lesbian who 
which this was like, what is she doing here? It's like, she loves Jesus. Oh, and I mean, literally they sat next to each other every day and became tense friends, but it was like, they had the maturity of a whole difference. And she never accused him of homophobia and he never called her an abomination mm-hmm. and they didn't change their minds, Yeah, but maturity allowed them to hold difference with respect, remembering we are children of God. Mm-hmm. So to call someone brother or sister then um, is, is an assault on every other status that would, would undermine the kingdom. When it comes to, um, when it comes to uh, something like COVID, no, I don't want to throw a grenade in your church, so I won't. <laughs> but um, here's my experience. Um, my experience is that I attend a monastery parish. I am on the board of that parish. Um, and my opinions about, about COVID and how to, and COVID protocols are, are very, um, specific to my son, who was a COVID director in a hospital, giving me actual numbers day of not interpretations. He's just, here's the numbers. And so I have opinions derived from my son's direct experience and, um, those who've attacked him, I, I, I have a hard time with. I, I would probably, I, I have distanced myself from those who attack my son for who weeps over this stuff and is overwhelmed with exhaustion. Okay, now I go to the monastery and I'm like, I, uh, as a board member, we set up protocols. I put a, I put a, so I didn't put up, we put up like, here's just the rules. The, we're, we're going to obey the province. We provide the masks. We get, I get to church and three people in the whole church are obeying the protocols. I can't even get in the door because we have a lot of Eastern European immigrants who understand mandates from the state as very dangerous. Yeah, for sure. So now they're not vaccinated. They're not masked and they're not social distancing. And I'm standing outside the door. And my wife is immune compromised. My other son works with a quadriplegic, putting him to bed every night. He can't have contact with someone who's had contact. So what does this mean? I'll tell you what it means. It's like we had to make a choice. Um, either I use force, and which probably wouldn't work. It would energize the COVID defiant in our congregation. Or I leave or wait, I, I can't enter, but I can't leave. So I'm in this tension now. And we're like, what are we going to do? And like, we, our parish is an immigrant community dedicated to welcoming the stranger from countries like Russia and Serbia and Moldova. And so I'm like, I will, I will wait outside the door until rather than asking them to leave or making them obey me. Hmm. Um, I don't think I even have a choice about that. <laughs> hmm. It's just like, I, because I, 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 I won't abandon that community hmm. and I can't participate in it. So I'm in an awful, a pretty awful place. It's a grievous place. Yeah. So I've only been able to be part of my community where I'm supposed to be one of the preachers. I've only been able to attend twice in, 15 months 
So what does this mean? You know? Yeah. If somehow this comes around <laughs> eventually, um, I'll be able to enjoy that fellowship again. Yeah. And until it does, I suppose this is a cross I'm bearing. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm willing to bear it. Hmm. That that's a beautiful story. It's, yeah. I, I don't know if it is. <laughs> I'm inside <laughs> of it and it, it just feels kind of terrible, but you know, I, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, but I think I was... you telling me, me that like helps me. It encourages me. Hmm. Hmm. I would prefer to hear your story when you were through this and you told us all of the wonderful things that happened because you waited outside the door for your community. But so often we're living in the middle of the story and we're not at the end. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. What we, what I need and, and you've offered. um, And I think this is the big solution, the big, big solution in, in a culture where we have all sorts of, politicized issues and divisions is 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 empathy mm-hmm. and um i mean that in a very heavy way in the sense of empathy is the closest thing we come to the cross itself where god puts himself in our shoes mm-hmm. and undergoes the fullness of our condition so that hebrews 2 and hebrews 4 says he He now knows what we've experienced directly, not through omniscience, but through wounds that he bears. And that's a God I can worship. And that's a God I can follow. And so, so when we offer one another empathy, um, that's, that's a, a, even more, a profound experience, perhaps more profound, even, oh, this is strange to say i've never thought of it it's it may be more important and profound than redemption mm-hmm. because many of us won't be redeemed from our situation until the next life that's right but all of us can engage in in christ-like cruciform empathy mm-hmm. right now and so yeah. thanks for doing that for yeah. me i i feel it yeah yeah you're welcome <laughs> um Okay, last question, just get really practical. How can we become aware of the ways that we slip back into seeing the world and us versus them or become aware of our own self-righteousness? Are there, are there, you talked about like not living in an echo chamber, but are there other practices that you engage that help you with that? Well, this, this one's going to sound too simple, but say your prayers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> specifically, you know, I, I do believe that if we, if we pray the Lord's prayer daily with attention, mm-hmm. you're always on, on a daily basis, you are going to run into father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. He there recognizes, I, what I love is that he's not pretending we don't have these tensions or even enemies. Yeah. Um, he, he's saying, if you can think of someone, if you can still think of someone as an as a enemy, where that is where there's animosity, then good, we can work with that. We'll pray that and I pray the Beatitudes every day which I believe are the character of Jesus. So if you think about the things that generate us, them mentalities that 
become the foundations for injustice and exclusion. Mm -hmm. They can't get past the first three or four Beatitudes. It's mm -hmm. like, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn with those who mourn, those who are meek, mm -hmm. who hunger for justice and who show mercy. Oh, there's, um, so all of that loosens up the soil yeah. of, of my heart where it's hardened. With that in mind, then I, I'm deliberate then in like to feel in the moment when I'm turning away from love. Hmm. And, and to say that to turn from love is to turn from God. And do I really want to do that? Because when I turn from the light of the love of God, I create a shadow and bad stuff happens in that shadow. These are, those are just a few of the, the, the little practices. Well, so let's summarize them again of befriending people who are different, are different than you, mm -hmm. having the maturity to hold that difference with respect without having to change them and to begin and um, praying the Lord's prayer and the Beatitudes. I, I actually recommend this. Do it every, do it every day. One thing, the fruit of that that may come out on many, many, many political issues is where Christians have slipped into my rights as their highest moral value, mm -hmm. rather than love your neighbor as yourself. And um, how, how freedom is, has become a, a euphemism for my way, my, my will be done. Um, I find it unfortunate that the church is actually leading that parade. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so back to love your neighbors. You know. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you, Brad, for all thank your you so much. This is so great. Yeah. I have so much to think about. Many yeah. blessings nice to on connect you. with you. Thank yeah. you. I hope, I hope you find something. Oh, it's going to be usable. <laughs> it's going to be all great. Right.